You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to a special 4th of July edition of Real Vision Daily Briefing. We're recording this on Wednesday to give our production staff a well-deserved break. I'm here with Ed Harrison. Welcome, Ed. Yeah, good to see you, Ash. Good to see you, too. We're just coming off uh, yesterday, two days, uh, Monday and Tuesday, of the crypto gathering. Um, and we received a lot of questions that we just didn't have time to answer uh, during those panels. We wanted to talk about some of those questions and some other things that we've been hearing from our viewers. Right. And I have some uh, questions to answer that I've created for myself uh, and for you that I think that uh, some of the viewers have asked and that uh, I think that just I have my uh, answers uh, to questions that I have myself that I want to uh, give to viewers. So I think it should be a good session. Self-interview format, greatest hits, and, and unresolvable, unknown, unfathomable questions. Exactly. So Ed, our first question comes to us from Ronnie. How can I deal with crypto taxes? I'm a bit afraid to do trades or too much movement with crypto because I want to do it right. Yes, that is good. By the way, you know, I have a, a, a crypto account with Kraken, uh, um, Ash, and uh, yeah, so I, I'm I'm ready to go myself on that. But you're the crypto guy, so that's your question for yourself, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, look, I would say, um, you know, crypto taxes are taxes. IRS has obviously expressed a great deal more interest in cryptocurrency uh, recently. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have any magic words of advice for you. I don't uh, prepare my own taxes. I go to an accountant. I would say find an accountant you know and trust. Um, and I know this is easier said than done, but be organized and keep good records. You know, if I were trading crypto, uh, I would probably find um, a, a very well uh, regarded US based exchange. Uh, I probably wouldn't trade on more than one platform just to simplify the reporting. Uh, and I would make sure that my records were available, especially if I were moving in and out of positions quickly, so that you can properly report uh, profits and loss. Right. And remember, you know, Ash, I think the most important thing is the U.S. federal government considers cryptocurrencies to be an asset, not a currency. And therefore, it's taxed in, the, in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think from the if you're not preparing your own taxes, the most important thing is to have records so that your uh, so that your accountant can apply the right accounting treatment to it. Uh, this question comes to us from Isidore. This is a question that's uh, right in your wheelhouse, Ed. So you guys are very much on the W-shaped recovery scenario. What specific data points slash events would make you guys think the W-shaped recovery is wrong? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, uh, okay, so in terms of the W-shaped recovery, the way that I'm thinking about it is that we had a shutdown and a very large drop in GDP uh, globally and in the United States in particular, and that to the degree that there is a second uh, bump down in growth, it doesn't necessarily have to be a recession per se, it's going to be related to coronavirus, uh, a second wave. Europe hasn't had the second wave so far. 
the U.S. is having the second wave and there have been rollbacks and potentially even uh, lockdowns on a localized level uh, for as a result of that. And therefore, there's going to be economic activity that's going to uh, not happen. And therefore, you're going to get sort of a, uh, a roll down in economic activity, which could actually be a recession if it's enough. Uh, what would cause me to believe that that W wouldn't happen? I think in particular, it's about the viral caseload and 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 the rollback. Th- those are the two biggest things. One is the the economic reactions from the government. And t- we've already seen the rollbacks, but maybe they're just not uh, long enough. Maybe they're not drastic enough to really have an impact on GDP growth. Mm-hmm. And then the second is when you think about uh, the number of people who are being infected relative to before, a lot of those people are young people. Uh, we know a lot more about the virus than we used to know. We have some drugs that are good for treatment. It may not be that we have the same level of deaths and you know the same sort of impact from a consumer perspective. And as a result, maybe the W will be attenuated or eliminated altogether. I, I'm very skeptical that it'll be eliminated altogether, but certainly the, the combination of rollbacks that aren't that great and also a you know not terrible virus situation in terms of deaths might help for the consumer and therefore the w wouldn't be as as bad that's my answer yeah that's a very thoughtful answer and and i just like to say isidore that's a great question one of my favorite questions is really what what are the what are the data points or events that would lead you to believe your thesis is wrong. And it's always important to ask those questions so that you know when you see something uh, that might be unfolding that suggests, hey, maybe there's some variables or factors that you didn't quite account for. Right. Here's an interesting question from Isaac, a short question with profound implications. Is the fear of inflation real or just overblown on Twitter? I think it's a great question. And uh, my answer to a certain degree goes to MMT. Uh, modern monetary theory. And we actually, I think even tomorrow, which will be uh, yesterday when this this films, we're going to be doing a interview that uh, will run next week with uh, one of the leading proponents of modern monetary theory, Stephanie Kelton. And I'm sure one of the questions is going to be about inflation. Because the, the the real question is, what does what causes inflation? You know, um, we know that Friedman uh, Milton Friedman had said that it's everywhere a monetary phenomenon, but really it's not. We know from quantitative easing. A lot of people said quantitative easing would lead to hyperinflation. It didn't. What really causes inflation is that asset prices, or rather prices are being pushed up because dem- demand outstrips supply. And what I would be concerned about is, is when you have a restricted supply and, and there's a lot of demand for that supply. And the question is, is when can that happen in the near future in the United States that would, uh, on a generalized level? I think it could happen, obviously, if you had another shutdown and, uh, and, and therefore the supply was restricted and demand was there. But beyond that, I think that there are very limited ways for that to occur absent uh, real uh, pick up from a mon- monetary theory perspective in terms of trying to really close the the output gap. Uh, to me, uh, 
the question for MMT is not about uh, default on U.S. government debt. It's really about inflation. If you really push it to the limit, then you should be able to close the output gap. That's when the inflation should appear. And really, we're not there yet. So I'm less concerned about inflation in the near term as a result of that. Uh, and and I think that it'll be interesting to see what Nick Kelton, who's MMT guest that we have said this as well. Uh, Stephanie Kelton's an MMT god. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's she's sort of the leading proponent of MMT these days. She has this book out, The Deficit Myth, so it goes all into that. I think it'll be interesting to see what she has to say about inflation, because that's the Achilles heel of MMT. Yeah, and who's interviewing her? It is going to be Marshall Auerbach, who is a uh, someone who is very familiar with MMT, uh, and... Uh, he is also a good friend of Stephanie Kelton, so he'll be able to know what's in her head and sort of give us the you know the devil's advocate inside take uh, in a way that other people wouldn't be able to. Fantastic! That sounds like a great peer-to-peer -peer interview. Definitely. And by the way, for those who are not as fluent in macroeconomics as Ed is, the output gap is the gap between potential output and uh, real output or current output caused by cyclical fluctuations in the economy. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The next question, Ed, is actually to Roger Hurst who is not here. Uh, he's out on assignment and uh, will be returning, I believe it's the week after next. Is that right? Yeah, next week. Uh, or yeah, the week after next. He will be out all of next week. Right. Um, so in Roger's absence, we had, uh, which is sorely missed, We'd uh, there are a lot of interesting questions that I'd love to hear Roger answer. Um, but I'm going to take one about Bitcoin and blockchain because there have been a lot of questions about that, not surprisingly, perhaps because yesterday uh, and the day before was the block uh, was our crypto gathering. So this question comes to us from Randall. And the question is, what happens when the last Bitcoin is mined? Who keeps the network going? This is a great question. Um, I've heard it a number of times and it's probably worth answering here. So interestingly enough, uh, the Bitcoin network is, of course, uh, is of course there's an economic incentive for people to participate in it, and that's what keeps it going. There are actually two different types of economic reward uh, on the Bitcoin network. The first is the block reward, which comes from the mining uh, of new blocks, which is what Randall's referring to here. And the second is the transaction fee. So when the final block of Bitcoin is mined, when we reach the maximum circulating supply of 21 million Bitcoin, um, the block reward disappears, but the transaction fees continue. And in that way, uh, the network will continue to be monetized by the participants. Also worth pointing out, the last block of Bitcoin is projected to be mined around 2140. So it's probably not something that any of us watching now are going to have to worry about. Well, cryogenics tell me that I'm going to be alive at that point, Ash. I don't know about you. That just sounds exhausting. <laughs> One life is enough. All right, this next one comes to us from Mike. Could I ask, what is your perspective on gold and the potential for miners in the years to come? 
Yeah, you know, gold's not necessarily in my wheelhouse, but I think I can take a stab at that because really it's related to systemic issues. I think a lot of people, when they talk about gold, uh, mistakenly talk about gold in terms of inflation. When inflation's up, then uh, gold is up. But the way that I look at it is twofold. One, gold is what you would call a hedge against financial repression. That is, is when uh, real interest rates are negative. So when the inflation rate is actually higher than the interest rate uh, that you can receive on uh, treasury securities or any other uh, asset that is, uh, is, not, is not a risk asset. And also, I think that gold is a systemic issue in terms of fiat currency. It's, a, it's a, another currency. It's if there's something that happens in the, in the financial system, if it breaks down in any capacity, you want to have a store of value, and that's where gold is. I, I do think that we still have issues with regard to uh, systemic issues going forward, especially in the middle of a pandemic. So gold has a store of value worth there. But also going forward, we know that central banks are going to be engaged in financial repression. We know that there's European Central Bank and a lot of European central banks in general are having interest rates that are negative. Uh, and in the United States, even though there might be a zero or positive rate, it's, it's lower than the rate of inflation. So the opportunity cost for holding gold is less and therefore gold is going to be bid. I think that that means that gold can go higher. Then the question is, is about the miners. A big question in terms of the miners are twofold. One is in terms of, of uh, operating leverage, and the second is in terms of management. Operating leverage tells you that everything should fall to the bottom line if uh, your costs are not that much greater. Uh, when gold prices go up and your price in your your uh, costs haven't gone up as much, all of that profit falls to the bottom line. That means that the miner is worth relatively more. So you get a bigger spike out of miners with gold. But we know that you know some of these miners are actually not even making money. Uh, and then the management is a big problem. So to the degree that it's a poorly managed mine, you might not see anything out of that. So I have less to say about the miners I have more to say that I think that gold looks good here with financial repression to stay. And maybe in well-managed uh, miners, you can get an outsized gain as a result of that. The next question, Ed, comes to us from Ivan, I believe. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, if you could bring any two people to discuss on RV Live, who would your dream best guest be? And he specifies they have to be living people. That's the constraint of the question. They have to currently be living people. Yes, I'll give you my two. My two are Donald J. Trump and Warren E. Buffett. And by the way, E stands for Edward, just so that you, you know. Uh, Interesting. So we have a connection there. Um, I, the reason I, I would go with uh, Trump is because a lot of people, uh, they have, uh, you know, I think that he's an empty vessel upon which they put their own uh, biases and in mm -hmm. terms of what he's thinking about in terms of economic policy. Uh, and, you know, he's articulated some of his economic policy, but I don't think that he's articulated in as detailed a way as he would have to were he to submit to a real vision style interview. And we would get a very specific understanding of, you know, where he's going, both over the short term and the long term, how much of that is based upon uh, actual 
fundamentals in terms of the economy and how much of it is based upon you know his political outlook at one particular time or another and we understand in terms of his rhetoric from uh you know what people would call protectionist point of view how much that is based upon you know what he thinks is good for the economy and what's bad for the economy and i think it would be great because um, I think that there's a lot of projection as to what people think that he's thinking about. And it would be good to get him on the record in, in, in terms of what he really is thinking. And with Warren Buffett, I've followed Buffett for a long time. I've admired him for a long time. But recently, he's really taking it on the, on the nose, on the chin. And the question is, uh, you know, what does he really think uh, in terms of a lot of things that... Uh, I don't believe that people are asking him in interviews that you would get on Real Vision because we're much more of a macro house than a stocks house. I'd really love to to understand his thinking on that level. Uh, I know that he's on CNBC all the time, but I, I, I feel like we ask different questions. Yes, we definitely do. Um, I'll give you a thematically related answer. Uh, two guests who I would most like to have on uh, would be Ben Bernanke uh, and Hank Paulson. But there is one proviso. And the proviso is that we have to have cocktails before we get on the air. <laughs> I've heard enough central bank speak. I've heard enough Finmin speak. I want to hear like the straight story of like, what were you guys actually thinking when you made uh, those monumental decisions in the wake of the 2007, 2008 crisis? Yeah, I think that would be great. So, I mean, if you can get the yeah. real deal, then that would be amazing. Yeah, I don't want a Princeton lecture here. Like, I want to hear what you were actually thinking. What were your fears? Uh, what were your expectations? Uh, and what were the thought process that actually drove the execution of the decisions themselves? Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The next question comes to us from CEP950. That sounds like a very interesting handle. Um, the question is, please recommend books so that a dummy like me can learn to invest. There are no dummies, by the way, in investing. They're just people who are beginning uh, their long journey uh, to knowledge, which is, frankly, I think a lifetime pursuit for all of us. But Ed, what do you think? Two books. Yeah, you know, uh, I was thinking about this. Um, the, I, you know, I have a degree in economics and I have another in uh, business administration. So one side's the economic side, the other is the finance side. And really... I think that we were missing on both sides uh, economic history. I don't think I studied any economic history in either of those disciplines, no, and nor financial history. And so I would go heavy, uh, not in terms of trading or you know thinking about stop losses and things of that nature. I would go in terms of understanding you know how things have happened before and how they're likely to happen again. So Great Crash, 1929, from John Kenneth Galbraith. I'd go with Mania's, uh, I think it's Mania's Panics and Crashes by Charles Kindleberger. And Reminiscence of a Stock Operator is the third book that I would go for. I think those are three great books in terms of market history. Yeah, you know, it's really funny that you should say that. I was actually coming at this from a similar vein. Uh, I was going to say um, uh, Crisis Economics, a Crash Course in Finance by Nouriel Roubini, my great macroeconomic mentor, and Stephen Mim, who's actually an economic historian uh, and does a lot of the anal analysis of uh, the historical uh, trends in crises uh, that have blown across the world since the, you know, the South Seas bubble uh, and uh, the Mississippi 
Trading Company, a great book to understand all of that context and how it relates specifically to the 2007-2008 financial crisis. Uh, and I'll give three, two, actually. The second two are thematically related. I would say uh, the Berkshire Hathaway Letters to Shareholders uh, by Warren Buffett, an absolute clinic in value investing, in understanding the fundamentals of how you evaluate uh, and select great businesses to invest in. Uh, and then, of course, Warren Buffett's great partner, Charlie Munger, has written Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is about investing. Uh, and also about life and thinking and about the intellectual toolkit that you need to bring to investing and toward making decisions in the business world more generally. I think three great books you can't go wrong with. Great. Yeah, those are great books. Uh, let me also say, you know, because uh, just to go off script here in terms of how we're thinking about uh, ask, ask me anything. I, I think we should ask ourselves some questions that things that we are asking from the viewers. I was thinking about this because um, on Tuesday I spoke to uh, Dave Floyd, who's a technical uh, analyst from Aspen Trading. He looks at things in terms of what the market is, what it's doing, what it's saying right now, as opposed to all the macro stuff, the, all the macro stuff that we just talked about, you know, the, the picture outside. So I feel like for Real Vision Daily Briefing, that's a good thing every once in a while to have. And I, I want to know, do people think that it is a good thing to bring in guests who have a, a, a different perspective? I, I really think that getting dissonant voices from the bullish side, from the bearish side, getting outside opinions from Real Vision, the inside uh, view from us uh, at Real Vision is good. So if I had to ask me anything, I would ask me that. And I would say, my answer would be, yes, bring those, these guys on once a week, that sort of thing. That, I think that would be a good number. Uh, what do you guys think? That's a great question, Ed. And I'd probably only add to that one thing, which is, are you also interested in hearing about the world from a different perspective? You know, Ed and I tend to talk about things from a, a strategic macro thematic perspective. Are you interested in hearing more of a tactical trading view uh, of the world? And, uh, and, and if so, who are some of the guests you'd like to see? in that space. Yeah, and uh, just adding on to that, I think the the big caveat I'd have to say is because this is a quick turnaround from a it's a heavy lift from the editorial editing perspective, the shooting and editing perspective, it's very difficult uh, to deal with that in terms of charts. You know, one of the things that was missing yesterday from the tactical perspective was the charts because charts are a big part of technical analysis and i don't think that we have uh unless we load them up prior and do a lot of pre-work the ability to give it as chart heavy a look as we would if it were a normal interview so that's the one caveat that i would put in there yeah we turn the show around really quick so that we can do it at the end of the day after markets close and then get it to you by six o'clock so let me go back to asking ourselves the question again, ask ourselves anything, you know, because I've seen some things about uh, uh, how much content we have, you know, how long the interviews are and things like that. And uh, let me just say, because I did an interview earlier today with Mark Ritchie for RV Live that I personally, I believe that going over an hour, I don't really like to do it that often. I do it every once in a while. I remember there was a, a guy from Double Line who I spoke to for 75 minutes but none of my interviews are, other than that are probably ever over an hour. I just think that if you can't get it distilled down into that period of time, then break it up 
into two separate pieces. That's about the max amount of time that people are going to listen to you. The second thing I wanted to say about, you know, so the ask me anything, I guess the question is, is uh, how can the content at Real Vision be different? I think that uh, the, in terms of what we present, I don't think that it can be different. I, I think it's good the way that it is. Uh, yeah, a lot of people ask the question about, do we have too much? Yes, we have too much in terms of maybe sometimes the interview should be shorter. But in terms of the actual amount of content, really, there's only one interview a day on this platform, one interview per day, and then one real vision daily briefing. And if you want more, you can go to the plus or the pro tier and there's there's more content there. But there's really legitimately only one piece of content per day, uh, per weekday at Real Vision and the Real Vision daily briefing. I think that's a good number. That's a good amount. I feel good about that. How about you, Ash? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We just finished, obviously, the crypto gathering, and we had these really hard stops where you had to stop at, you know, 50 minutes or 55 minutes in some cases. And I thought it was a useful discipline. I kind of I kind of like the idea of uh, bringing uh, interviews into it at a specific time. I guess it's because I really like to watch everything. There's like a feeling of satisfaction I get at the end of the week if I've watched every Real Vision piece. Um, so for me, and obviously there are special circumstances where you're going to want to run like 90 minutes because it's a special once in a lifetime interview. And maybe in those cases, uh, it may make sense to uh, to extend it a little longer. But I kind of like the, the 50 minutes as a hard stop. But we're really curious actually to hear what you think. Definitely uh, want to hear what the what the audience thinks about the about the duration. Do you enjoy when those uh, interviews go over an hour, or is it something where you just feel like I, I love the content, but it's just difficult to find enough hours in the day to watch it all? Very curious to hear what you're thinking about this. So I think we had a chance to answer some good questions there, Ed. Yeah, I, I do. I definitely think that it was good, and in the interest of doing as you say, and you know, keeping it time limited, I think that uh, we should. Uh, Reel it in here. It's good. It was. I, I, I enjoyed it very much, actually. Yeah, it's great to have this opportunity to, to ask ourselves these questions. Uh, and also, we read all of your comments and questions. Uh, we may not get a chance to address all of them, but we definitely read them. So if you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, any questions you'd like to ask, please jump in in the comment section. We always appreciate it. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Ash, and I hope that you are having a great fourth when this comes out. Thanks, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.